Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Hey, everybody. A great one for a change. And this time, I mean it. You got to listen to this one because finally, finally, you're going to learn something from listening to the podcast, and it's about time. My guest is historian Douglas Boyne, and his big area of expertise is ancient Rome. And he's written this wonderful book, Alaric the Goth, an outsider's history of the fall of Rome. And this Alaric the Goth led the sack of Rome in 410 AD. He's the guy who brought down the Holy Roman Empire, barbarians at the gate, Alaric led them. And the whole reason I interviewed him was that there are just tremendous parallels between Rome in 410 A.D. and the United States in 2020 A.D., including that the emperor at the time had ridiculous hair. So uh, before we get to Alaric the Goth, let's talk about uh, Donald Trump for a second. Holy mackerel, just when you think you couldn't possibly learn something worse and you already know about Donald Trump as a human being, we get this Atlantic Monthly story about his contempt for the suckers who've served in our military and were wounded or died for our country. Losers. Now, you've probably heard this hashed out by now, but, uh, you know, not going to the cemetery in France where uh, over a 1,000 Marines died in, in World War I, stopping the Germans' advance on Paris. Uh, according to the article, Trump didn't go because it was raining and he was afraid that his hair would collapse. Uh, maybe that's the best word. Anyway, that's, of course, why he didn't go. But to save face, he told his aides he didn't want to go because it's a cemetery filled with losers. You know, to save face. And by the way, there is no way he didn't say this stuff because one of the Absolutely horrendous stories in the piece is him going to Arlington Cemetery with John Kelly, visiting Kelly's son's grave and saying, I don't get what was in it for them. And in the article says, Kelly, who declined to comment for this story, initially believed, people close to him said, that Trump was making a ham-handed reference to the selflessness of America's all-volunteer force. But later, he came to realize that Trump simply does not understand non-transactional life choices. So I called up my old colleague, Illinois Senator Tammy Duckworth. Uh, you probably know that the chopper that Tammy was piloting in Iraq was shot down, and she lost uh, both her legs. So uh, here's our phone. Thanks for calling in. Uh, of course. Now, at, at the end of this Atlantic Monthly piece, the author writes that during uh, planning for a military parade, Trump asked his staff to not include wounded veterans on the grounds that spectators would feel uncomfortable 
in the presence of amputees. No one, nobody wants to see that. He said, now, as a double amputee, I, I'm sure you've been getting uh, twice the requests that mere single amputees have been getting. Is that, is that right today for interviews? Yes, we, we go by the body part. <laughs> Uh, now, I know you pretty well, and uh, you have a good, dark sense of humor, uh, as do I. Uh, but this, this, this one sickens me. This just sickens me. And we know it's true because Kelly hasn't denied it. Part of the article is that he goes to uh, Arlington and goes to the grave of, with Kelly of his son and says, uh, "What well, you know, the, he's a sucker. Why, why would he do this? Yeah. Yeah. He also said that Mattis was a pretty smart guy. I wonder why he joined the military. Also, this is consistent with what Trump has said all along. Um, he has no respect for those who serve a cause greater than themselves, and he views them as suckers. And it's shameful in somebody who is sitting in the position of being the commander-in-chief of our nation's military. Um, well, some of yeah. the bravest men and women that both you and I have ever met. Of course. Know, uh, I mean, he commands them. he's a commander in chief. I would think this might be a little demoralizing uh, for uh, the men and women of the military uh, to know that the commander in chief is calling them suckers and losers. Yeah. I mean, listen, it's, it's demoralizing. And e but even if you did not care about the troops, it also affects our military readiness. Because when our troops go into harm's way, they need to know that the nation and their entire command is 100% behind them. They should not have even a moment of doubt that if I get wounded, will I be cared for? Will my family be cared for? Uh, they need to focus purely on the mission at hand. And how can they do that when the commander-in-chief calls them suckers and questions their sacrifices? And by the way, hasn't done enough by them when it comes to veterans' benefits in the four years that he's been in office. Now, I did not serve, as you know, and but I did do a lot of USO tours, and that's how we met. We met uh, Walter Reed. Yeah. Uh, we, we met at Walter Reed, and you did the USO tours, not just to Walter Reed. Um, uh, you, went, you went overseas multiple times as well. And I will tell you that um, we troops really, really valued those who came on the USO tours because you didn't have to go, right? You were not under orders. You volunteered to go into a war zone. You volunteered to go into some of the most heart-wrenching situations at Walter Reed on your own will because you cared about us. And our troops, uh, me being one of them, uh, will always, always hold that dear in our heart. And, and, and just, you know, we have a special place in our heart for, for USO tour uh, members. I was already an Al Franken fan before you came through. So well, when we you met... Went you went over a new fan in me, but yeah. When we met... Uh, you had, I think you had, uh, was it uh, Rush Limbaugh's Big Fat Idiot or was it Lies and Lying Liars on your bedside table? I had been reading Lies and Lying Liars in Iraq. And when you get wounded and they send all your gear back, or if you get killed, God forbid, they, they send all your gear back. They they just send the basic, you know, most personal things. Um, and I didn't get my book back. <laughs> and, I was, and I was bitching about it to you. <laughs> and then two weeks after you visited, you very kindly sent me an autographed copy, which I have prominently displayed on my bookshelf here at home. Well, meeting you and also go, going you know, to Walter Reed was an amazingly moving experience for me, uh, always. And I remember the first guy I met 
had a leg missing. Uh, he was leaning against the wall. I said, what happened to you? And he said, well, I came in here for a vasectomy. And the, <laughs> the sense of humor <laughs> of these guys. And when I first started there, I don't remember. We've probably discussed all this, but, you know, I'd, we'd take a picture and then I'd sign it, right? And I would sign, uh, yeah. you know, first I would say, thank you for your service. And about the third guy I signed it for, he said, you know, we really don't like that because everybody just says thank you for your service and we don't know how much they really mean it right so i kept then i started doing signing pictures thank you for being grievously wounded <laughs> and we loved it of course awesome. of course <laughs> i do chuckle about it <laughs> <laughs> so there you go uh, <laughs> there's there's not much more to say uh pretty disgusting do you think this could be it i mean i know when he said that uh you know when he kind of very early in the campaign said that uh mccain wasn't a hero because um, you know he 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 doesn't really think people got captured were heroes, and when that didn't do it, I I thought that was the end of his campaign. And when it wasn't, and between then and now, there's been a million things. I mean, you know, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me a million times, shame on me. But could this be it? Could this be it? No, right. <laughs> well, I would tell you though, Al, there was a. a, um, a a poll that came out that shows that um, the majority of service of actively serving men and women um, have said that they would not vote for him. He's gotten to that point now where um, the majority of those who serve do not want, would not vote for him. And I think this is sort of, you know, this puts a cap on it. I don't think that if there were any that were undecided that they will vote for him now. And you're right. It is in a long series of things that he said. Remember that when somebody showed him their purple heart. He said, oh, I'd love one of those. I'd like getting it this way, the easy way. Somebody just gives it to you. That so could have been a joke. Has, he has, could have been a joke. It could have been, you know? <laughs> yeah, but it's not something to joke about. It's not something to joke about. I know, um, but that doesn't, it could have been yeah. an inappropriate, slightly inappropriate joke. He could maybe not have meant literally that, maybe. Uh, you know, w when I would go, I did seven USO tours. And when I go to a DFAC, a dining facility, uh, there was... Fox was on, Fox was on, Fox was on. And these guys were, uh, men and women, were pretty, you know, right-wing and pretty conservative. And the fact that a, that a plurality of them, I think it was a plurality, will, don't support him <laughs> and uh, is uh, pretty amazing. So, uh, Tammy, thank you. My pleasure to be on. And uh, thank you for your service, and thank you for uh, saying what you did in the New Yorker piece. I appreciate that. Well, of course. I just tell it like to get it now. Okay, we'll get back to work. To stay uh, safe and don't lose any more legs, okay? <laughs> well, the ones I can lose now are great. They're easy to replace. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thanks, Tammy. <laughs> okay, thanks, Al. Bye. We'll be right back with uh, Douglas Boyne and Alaric the Goth. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. 
Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. I read the book. Sounds like you did some research for this. A little bit. Four, <laughs> four years. <laughs> yeah. The reason... I'm interviewing you now, it is that there are some parallels. Alaric is the uh, guy who led the sack of Rome. That's considered sort of the sack. That's right. Yep. The most important sack or the, the turning point. It was the first sack, right? It was. It was the first time in maybe 800 years, so not in anyone's immediate memory, that the the empire had had seen someone attack its capital city so really kind of catastrophic moment okay and then after that rome was kind of never the same at least that part of the empire the that's right european yeah, part constantinople had a kind of a life after that for a long time there that empire stood for quite a while right it did the empire in the east is is often kind of held up and cheerleaded as this kind of shining example of how you can continue after a major attack on one half of your of your empire. But I, I think that's, you know, it's it's really tricky to, to try to get any good news out of that. The the empire completely fell apart after Alaric's attack. The empire wasn't anywhere nearly as cohesive or united as it as it was. So the idea that, you know, you can look to Constantinople and say, hey, you know, we kept it going for as long as we did, I have real problems with because you know, in order to get there, they basically had to say, well, we're, we're not going to incorporate foreigners. We're not going to find a way to, to build an inclusive empire. So we'll just do our thing and continue to call it ancient Rome. And they lasted, but I mean, it was nowhere near the phenomenon that the Roman empire was before that. Now, uh, you talked about, uh, 800 years before Alaric, there was maybe another sacking, right? Mm -hmm. I, you know what I'm thinking? I think we should start off because this is a service to my listeners and, frankly, to me, which is I don't know my history of Rome. And I would love to be able to go to a cocktail party and start talking about this as if I knew what I was talking about. And I think so to all my listeners. <laughs> and then <laughs> and then they'd be able to work it into a conversation. I don't know if I have it broken down that easily. All I know is that I'm really good at cocktail parties. I went to college and I went, I went through high school and I don't know anything <laughs> about Rome <laughs> other than it was there a long time and then it wasn't there or something. Uh -huh. So... Could you just uh, just tell me here at this cocktail party, uh, what's the deal? What was the deal with Rome? The deal with Rome is is really just a society that I don't think you'd ever want to step foot in today. It's a society of slavery. It's totally unjust. It's you know extraordinarily 
unequal in terms of wealth and access to power and education and 10% of the population is literate. It is not anything that should be held up as- Wait a minute. A lot of those things do describe (laughs) us today. We're talking about Rome here. I mean, this is, you know, so this is my two minute pitch on Rome, but it, it managed a phenomenal amount of accomplishment in its more than thousand year history. I mean, it started small, started as a little village town in the center of Italy by two kids, mythologically, who were raised by a wolf. It grew up through a sequence of governments from a monarchy to a republic to something that was a little more similar to a monarchy again. But during that time, it went from tiny little village to something that if we had to put it on the map, probably encompasses maybe, I think, 50, 52 modern nations on three continents. So all of the languages of those continents, all of the customs and cultures that went with those those people all became a part of this civilization that produced plays, fought wars, engineered amazing monuments. And I think it's probably right that if we are looking through the history books and flipping through the history books, trying to think, you know, who came before us? Are we really the first people to try to solve the problems that we're solving? That Rome would stand out and that we would want to go back and learn more about it. Okay, so uh, the Alaric fits in here where you, you say it's over a thousand years. So uh, Alaric is 410 AD, right, is, is the sack of, of Rome. And he was a goth, and he was a soldier. He had been a, a military guy. Uh, he was born not in Rome, but across the Danube from Rome, which was sort of a demarcation. And goths were not considered Romans, right? That's right. They were they were the northern frontier. They were the people just outside the border. The river was the border, and they grew up on the other side. So their own sets of customs, their own villages. They'd lived on the land for at least 100 or so years before Alaric's time. So you can imagine them kind of being kind of the native residents and just always looking over their shoulder at who are these kind of blustery imperialists that are that are just south of us. That was kind of the world he grew up in. Uh, I'm going to quote Socrates here, as I want to do. Uh, the horror of 410 stem from the casual disregard and complete inattention to the situation between citizens and foreigners, you see. And uh, so I, I, I quote that for a couple reasons. One, it sounds like I know about Socrates and can quote him. But two, <laughs> it seems to me that there are some parallels here. And I'm going to read another, uh, and I'm going to quote you. Okay. Okay. Uh, This was an age of extremism, a time when moderates everywhere lost political ground and radical beliefs about religious identity, state borders, and cultural exchange polluted the air, spreading across three continents. The political, cultural, and social disintegration of the Roman Empire might have been shocking, but not wholly surprising to those of Alaric's age. Their generation had witnessed dysfunction, disunity their entire lives. And one of the most divisive issues was the question of citizenship and whether foreigners would have a fair shot at becoming Romans. Okay, the reason I quoted that is that that there are a lot of parallels here. Was that deliberate when you wrote that? 
I, I wrote, I think, this book predominantly to make sure that we we had an outsider's perspective on a usual set of events, you know, and I've written the textbook basically for all intents and purposes on this period. So, you know, I'm not out there trying to make a cheap sell. I'm not out there trying to cash in on an easy, quick comparison. But having said that, and having listened to and and, and where can you buy this book? <laughs> you can buy it wherever books are sold. Okay, uh, good, good. I, but I, having I, listened to 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 you, just kind of summarize that prose part. All of that was in my mind. I, I I wake up, I read the newspaper. I can't get out of the frustration of the present day, and every bone in my body wants me to be engaged. However, it is that I can be engaged. So. When I was looking at this landscape of of Alric's time, I just knew that that there was something there that other people might be interested in because it was just eerie in terms of the the overlaps and the resonances. Well, let, let's go into that because uh, Alaric is a goth, okay, and uh, I think I think most people know that goths were uh, considered barbarians. I guess right. Yeah, I mean, we don't necessarily use that word anymore, but yes. Well, I, I don't want to be, I don't want to offend any goths out there. <laughs> okay, but what I'm saying is, when people think of barbarians at the gate, this is kind of literally it, right? I exactly. mean, they, exactly. they uh, invaded uh, and, and sacked Rome. So, can you tell me who vandals are and who goths are and any of the other peoples that were considered? barbarians when that was a proper term yeah you've got um huns so their kind of you know team leader is for all intents and purposes attila the hun is a you know someone who stands out as a, a leader of one of these groups of people who we call barbarians the vandals don't really have a big standout leader but um came from northern central europe and eventually sacked um, and pillaged all their way to to North Africa. Acquired a really bad, you know, pejorative reputation through. They through tipped over like people's mailboxes, right? Exactly. And TP'd yeah. their their lawns. Saint Augustine's mail was constantly being um, held up by vandals, and then the Goths, and and there's a ho- host of others. But for you know, if you're trying to conceptualize who they are and why they're called barbarians, they were outside the borders of the Roman Empire. And because of the just ingrained cultural superiority that the Roman people just really kind of couldn't kick, they could never get rid of the sense that, you know, if you didn't speak Latin or Greek, if you didn't kind of behave or dress the way that we did in our sophisticated culture, that you didn't deserve the name of being civilized. And so, Really, when you think about the the whole globe outside of the Mediterranean, which is really just an olive-driven, you know, water-centric empire, as soon as you leave that, then you get to global history, but you get Romans who don't want to have anything to do with with people who are outside that realm. So my kind of inclination as a storyteller is always to look for the untold perspective or to just kind of flip the tables or the script on the way things are usually told. And so I was looking at this kind of map of the world and thinking like you could tell the story of Rome again and when what happened to it and stay within that isolated universe or why not build a bridge to the direction that the globe is taking, which is 
to more kind of wider, expansive understanding of who people are, their traditions are, and try and find that person who literally grew up in between everything. And to me, Alaric was the person who just called out to have his story told because he was kind of on the on the fence, literally, between two parts of the globe. Basically, uh, in the book, you, you talk about his story, and he was a, a warrior in, in the Roman army, right? And he was very impressed, very good at it, and was sort of taken under the wing of uh, Romans. And he was, wasn't he administrator in one of the cities? He became part of the Roman government, right? Exactly. I mean, he, the Romans are impressed, even in their, their kind of haughtiness, and in their their sense of cultural superiority, they were always impressed with how he acted and behaved. And that is a kind of double-edged sword, but they would always say, and they were clear about it, that he, he was more Roman than he was a Goth. And I, I think that's a kind of, not necessarily a compliment if we really, really analyze it, but they they liked him. And he clearly had this inclination as a young kid to try to make a name for himself or a place for himself inside Rome. And, and I think what the sources suggest is that lots of people did. They saw Rome as something that was welcoming. They saw it as a place where you could get a farm, have a trade, provide for your family. And the requirements for what you needed to do were often really, really minimal to make that happen. The, what you describe in terms of the bias against Goths, that kind of, this is over a thousand years. So there are different <laughs> periods there. I mean, the United States has been around 400 years, I guess, basically. And we go through different cycles pretty fast. And they did too. At certain points, Goths were were more welcome than at other times. And didn't a goth become emperor? So there is a really famous story of a, he's probably descended from a gothic dad and his, his mom is, is also a kind of border, um, border parent. But in the third century, he was one of the first people to take advantage of a new citizenship law and he became emperor. And the goths themselves told that story, people from Alaric's day, loved that story because it kind of spoke to the triumphs, the successes. Um, I mean, yeah, these were, you know, not everything was kind of gloom and doom. There were paths to potential. No, well, that that is actually also a little bit of a parallel here, which is we go through periods too. I feel like we're going through a bad period mm-hmm. right now uh, in many ways. But things change in a thousand years. <laughs> and for example, oh Jesus happened, right? And uh, by the way, since you're a scholar on Rome, I just want to make this clear: it was the Romans who killed Christ and not the Jews, right? Hundred percent right. You're hundred percent right. That's right. So I want everyone listening to understand that the Romans killed killed Jesus and not the Jews, not the Jews. We'll be right back with Douglas Boyne and Alaric the Barbarian. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Today. 
plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome back. We're talking about Alaric the Goth. And now I have another question because I've seen a few movies where Pontius Pilate shows up. And a couple times I've seen movies with him, he says something and he says it this way. Um... Bring me this king of the Jews that I might meet him. Did Pontius Pilate talk that way? It was very stilted, I thought. Yeah. Everything that we know from Jesus' death uh, and and execution comes to us secondhand and through the bias of people who believed in him. I mean, notwithstanding my 21 years of Catholic education, I tend to kind of take a little bit more of a historical appreciation for some of these things now. And I mean, it's very unlikely that he even probably could have picked, you know, Jesus out of a lineup as it were, simply because when you, when you hear news of, of a rabble rouser, or you hear news of someone kind of stirring up commotion in the temple or in, in your territory, you simply just round everyone up and crucify them. So these elaborate set pieces, these elaborate scenes of, you know, dramatic play acting, as it were, I, I just think you have to be really suspicious about any of it. Well, you got to take license. You got to make it, the movie interesting. Yeah. We know that. Yeah. Uh, now, uh, but that brings me to, okay, that's uh, the beginning of Christianity. So that was a big deal. And, and, and Christianity was outlawed in uh, the Holy Roman Empire. Well, it wasn't holy then, I guess, uh, the Roman <laughs> Empire. And then then it became mandatory at a certain point, right? It and did. then it switched back to not. So again, things are in flux during this period. And of course, Jesus was, I think he was born zero AD. If you ask the medieval monks, they they made sure to to reorient the calendar, to restart everything at zero. If you asked the scholars, they would probably say that the time telling is off, and we probably would say 4 BC. So it's it's almost kind of ridiculous. Jesus was born before Jesus was born. But that's kind of the way that the calendar has gotten out of sync from over the course of a thousand years. So he was days. four when zero happened, but okay. Correct, yeah. He was born BC, so before Christ, he was born. Right. Okay, so that can that en- that's enough for an entire podcast, but let's not do that. Okay, so uh, the point is is that things change, and at one point being Christian was like outlawed. And by the way, you're talking about uh, Pontius Pilate uh, crucifying people. Uh, reading your book, I was just impressed at how friggin' brutal and violent life was, especially for emperors. It seemed like every emperor, not everyone, but a lot of them died in, were were assassinated Mm -hmm. and number beheaded. 
A number of them uh, ended up on, uh, their head ended up on a spike, uh, a salted head. Was that what you? Yeah, you nailed it. Yeah. You know, this book was about violence at every facet of society. I mean, it, we see the the heads on the spikes and the, the salted skulls and the people who get spears in their eye sockets. Uh, and it, that was during a battle. Yeah. So that 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 was you described that where it was a Roman soldier in battle. Yep. Yep. It gets a uh, what's is that like? It's not a spear. What would you call that? It was a javelin, uh, I think. A javelin goes through. I mean, you have the, your helmet, your metal mask and helmet, right? Is that what mm-hmm. you have then? Yep. Yeah. And but you got to see, so you have an eye hole, <laughs> and he got a javelin in his eye, and but kept fighting. Yeah, there there was one who who got it right at the base of his neck, and he he came back home and kept you know literally kept going. It's one of the you know the the violence is at every level of society, and and so the emperors are the ones who you know there's machinations, there's imperial assassinations and plots, and then you've got the the kind of everyday folks like the Al, the Alaric and the the Goths and the Vandals who there might be a, a burned church one day where their worship center gets set on fire because there's this kind of rabid xenophobic zeitgeist swirling around. And then all of the violence that we just never see the kind of, you know, daily interactions of doors shut in people's faces. Or, um, I mean, one of the ones that I, I just really always stood out to me, it's just a little vignette was the, the guys, the Goths who would be just out on the road coming back from the market or something, and they would meet Roman soldiers and the Roman soldiers would say, hey, why don't you come join us at the tavern? Why don't you come, you know, we'll go have dinner together. And they would never come home. They would never make it home because they were literally kind of beaten up, fallen upon, murdered, kicked to the side of the road. This was an ugly, this was an ugly time. And speaking of ugly, they were slaves, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and arbitrary, so. yeah, arbitrary slaves. I mean, I, I actually just did, this was really, it was really coincidental right before the book came out. One of my old students had reached out to me and she teaches, she teaches sixth grade in Chicago. And I had grown up in Chicago and she was one of my students and it was getting to be the end of the year. It, it, everyone had been zooming lessons. Everyone was exhausted. And, and she said, would you mind putting a lesson together to talk to the sixth graders about, about ancient Rome? Cause we're doing our ancient unit and they would just love it. They would love to meet it. So I got all excited and, you know, I put something together, tried to be as harmless and innocuous and down to earth as possible. Like, you know, whatever the sixth grade equivalent of a happy hour is, I'm not sure what that is. Um, but it's a graham crackers, graham cracker event. So I put something together on animals and I put something together on, um, you know, just geography and volcanoes. Cause I thought that would just be, that would be up their alley. And wouldn't you know it? I mean, at the end of the, at the end of the talk, a little girl raises her hand in zoom and says, was there racial discrimination in ancient Rome? And I just remember just having this really contradictory feeling in me of what a, what a profoundly smart girl, what an amazing moment for her to ask that. I mean, this took place three, three weeks ago, four, four weeks ago, but then also what a, what a horrible world we're currently going through 
right now where that's where we have to talk about these things. So the, the world is ugly. Rome was ugly, but I think it has to be talked about. Again, you know, who was a foreigner? Who got citizenship was a big part of what led to the sacking of Rome. Let's talk about the sacking uh, in, in particular. So they have gates, right? Mm-hmm. The, the, the Romans had a lot of security. They, they thought they had secured Rome. Tell, tell us about the gates of Rome. The gates are these kind of imposing passageways that are your, they're your arrival and the way that you kind of say goodbye. So you've got these just huge, gigantic kind of mouths with um, portcullises, which is the kind of technical term for the, the metal grates that come down and keep carriages out these kind of huge maws that you you go in and out and you there're signs of there're signs of life when you see them from 20 miles away you know 10 miles away you're you know you know that you've arrived in a place like Rome so there are some some big ones around the city there's four really big ones there's kind of middle range gates that would allow maybe just one cart or chariot to to make its way in and out and then you've got kind of the smaller smaller gates that are really just no more than a wooden door that someone comes at the end of the night and and shuts up and and locks and so all around the city you've got um this series of of 16 gates in Elric's day that are protected by the army and they you know it's their job to make sure that they keep an eye out on who's coming and who's going so that's kind of like the defensive, the defensive world that we're talking about. Uh, in in four ten, this is a, the sack lasted three days. It started on the twenty fourth, and by the twenty eighth, the the Goths were on their way to southern Italy. So about three days, yeah. Twenty fourth of what month? Of August. So uh, August twenty fourth of, of four ten. How do they get in the gate? So there's two. There's contradictory sources. One is that he just does about a month of reconnaissance and figures out kind of strategically where the best place is, where the soldiers might, you know, fall asleep early, where there might be a chance to sneak in and, you know, take advantage of, of people's, the lull in people's routine. And the other option, the other source which comes from slightly later, but is no less fascinating, is that he had help and that there was a, a wealthy woman whose name is Proba and, and that she actually leaves in the middle of the night to open one of the doors for him so that he can easily then slip inside. Whichever one it was, I think is, is not necessarily, I mean, I would love to work it out. History is about working things out would absolutely love to know. But I think they both suggest something really fascinating, which is this was a a subtle, a subtle moment. It wasn't kind of as, you know, there, there wasn't a kind of, well, just, a, you know. A, it wasn't charging of, like a horde of soldiers, charging a gate and breaking it down. He was a military strategist. He was a thinker. Yeah. I mean, he, he had been in battle. He had been studying the manuals. He had known how to devise and design and be strategic. So I, I think either way, there there was just a sense of, I, my, the impression I get from him 
having collected all the pieces of his life as 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 they did, is that he was just very clever. I got the impression that he was clever. And and the Romans, you know, they conquered a large part of the world and with their army, and uh, they taught their soldiers a lot of military strategy. And part of that was reconnaissance, right? Totally. I, I mean, everything he learned about how to predict what could happen if you tried to charge a gate. You might get flaming wooden wheels thrown on you that would roll down into your horses if you weren't careful. Everything he knew about the walls being deceptively double layered. I mean, from the outside, it looks like there's just one circuit of walls, but every Roman military engineer knows that your best defense is to set up a parallel wall right behind it. So when people break through, surprise, you know, you have another another wall and then you get slaughtered while you tackle it. Everything he knew about how Rome worked, Rome taught him because he was a Roman soldier. Do they indiscriminately kill Romans or not? I think we have to say yes. I think when people are let loose, that idea of coming into a city at night and being let loose and being angry. Uh, we may not have the exact sources to, to tell us who died or how many died or how many people took part in the riots, but there were women who were taken from their home. There were there were people who lost their lives, maybe not in those 20, those 72 hours, but slightly after them because of the, the trauma or because of the attack. At one point, it becomes clear to Alaric that there is this indiscriminate killing and he does put a stop to it. There is a source that says when he found out how poorly people were being treated by the the Goths who had come in with him, he's very clear about saying, this is not who I want us to be. This is not what this is about. So make sure you're, if, you know, if people are going to churches, treat that as a sanctuary space, treat them as people who are getting asylum. Don't, you know, indiscriminately slaughter. But I think during those first moments the the impression clearly is there was just a lot of rage and it got directed in ways that were uncontrolled. Let's go then back to the source of the rage. That is that the prejudice uh, against Goths and other foreigners and sort of the rules about who's a Roman and who isn't. There were really kind of unfair thing that always kind of struck me in a in a really unfair way was just the the unwritten rules that the romans came up with for who who counted or who mattered they had a system for extending citizenship it was basically decree it was you know the the emperor says you have citizenship it's really as simple as as that but the 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 everyday experiences of foreigners who came into the empire had to deal with this unwritten kind of set of laws that you had to dress the proper way. I mean, the people of the borders of the Roman Empire, the barbarians, you know, they don't wear togas traditionally. You know, they're not necessarily dressed in their sparkling white business outfit that a senator would be would be dressed in, or even necessarily in a kind of tunic, which is a kind of colorful more everyday outfit that you would have if you just were doing errands or, or working around at home. They dressed, you know, they had furs, they had animal skins, they had pants, they had leather. This was not anything that a Roman was kind of 
taught to accept. Then you throw on the fact that they might speak a foreign language, they might speak Latin or communicate with you in a stumbling way. They might not be the strongest, you know, native fluent speaker. And, and so the accents, the way that they dressed, how they behaved, these were all things that the Romans used to not give them rights. And, and I think that was just, that jumped out to me. Well, I mean, so in other words, you're a goth and you're walking around Rome and you're wearing some furs and you got this big beard and uh, you uh, have some tattoos and uh, Romans like look at you and go like, hey man, what are you doing here? And then the goth would go like, this is my place. Exactly. You know, this is I. This your, you know, and uh, then another goth tells that goth, "You shouldn't have to even say that. That you don't owe that to the Roman. You don't have to tell him it's your place." That's sort of what's happening in Rome at the time. Yeah, that and and what's remarkable. I mean, it sounds like the way just the way that hearing you describe it, the way you kind of like you know, bring it back to life. It just sounds to me like it could taking place at a coffee shop or taking place, you know, out in the streets right now. I mean, you, you just have captured how complicated it is. The one thing from the sources that is just so, so amazing to find, you know, when you find those moments that you can document and point to that just speak to you, you just have this aha moment. And I remember one of the aha moments was, was this little fragment of a story of two goths just like you kind of imagine, two goths at a dinner party. They had been invited to the palace. It was the emperor's dinner party. They were trying to be nice guests. And there's a lot of wine. Everyone's having a good time. And the two of them get into a fight. They get into a political fight at the dinner party. The substance of the conversation- With each other? With each other. They're sitting okay. over there on one corner of the room and they're just, they're, they're kind of devolving. Their, their internal chat is just kind of devolving. Because one of them is saying, shouldn't we be grateful that the Romans have invited us here and that they seem to be kind of slowly coming around to accepting Goths in the kind of larger framework of society? And the other one is there saying, I'm losing my patience with how slowly this process is going. I'm not sure we need to be grateful for the scraps of acceptance and legal acceptance that they're giving us something needs to change. It needs to change kind of fast. The way the story resolves is the two goths are just overcome with alcohol and one murders the other. And there's just this kind of bloodbath at the state dinner party that the emperor has to kind of have the enslaved people come and clean up and, and leave. You know, then were goths not invited then? That was it's one of the last kind of examples we have of Goss being invited to an imperial dinner party. But just the conversation between the two of them is right on target with what you were saying. They knew that what they were trying to get was a big ask. And there was a political debate within them about how effectively to get it, how quickly to to get it. And they were impatient with each other and they were they were at odds with each other about how to do it. Let me ask you about that because there's so much scholarship in this this book, and so I, I was very curious about how you do that. What exists? 
It doesn't. It seems like you had to work very hard to put the fragments together. And uh, what does exist? What's written and what isn't written? And what's written later, like a century later? How do you research this thing? You know, if you wanted to kind of get the story of what was happening right when Alaric was born, fortunately, everyone in Rome was reading Emianus. He's like your your go-to reporter for kind of everything that happened in the fourth century. Thankfully, we have big chunks of his work it was a magnum opus and it still is in the library shelves. I mean, it's, you know, it tells us about sports. It tells us about military campaigns against Persia, like really detailed, substantial reporting. By the time Alaric comes into the Roman Empire, so maybe by the time he's like in his 20s or, or early 20s, Emianus has died. And that means as historians were, were, were kind of screwed, except there were two writers one's named Olympiodorus and one named, one's named Eunapius, who took up the mantle of wanting to kind of be that on-the-ground, hotshot um, historical voice. And they wrote everything. They went everywhere. They traveled. They interviewed. They sat in taverns. Olympiodorus had a pet parrot that he took with him, and you know he would sit at the tavern, and people would have the parrot do tricks, and Olympiodorus would go home and you know, write everything down that he he was researching. And fortunately, those two writers were written down and copied and preserved into the Middle Ages. So we have parts of what it is that they said, even though their texts, their the the big kind of like blockbusters that they wrote, don't survive in full. So it's almost kind of the further you go into Alaric's life, the less material you get, um, which is always just really maddening as a historian. You kind of want full pictures. So little bit of big, you know, Amianus, then you've got the scraps of the writers, and then you've got the archaeologists who are who are there digging up new information. So it was really a combination of all those three sources that I needed. And and where do you go to do that research? Do you go to libraries here? Do you go to Rome? Do you go where do you, what do you do? How I mean do you I, do I will always, always use an opportunity to go to Rome. <laughs> so that was you know the the libraries in Rome are fantastic both because they have the ancient sources in the the forms that we need them, but the the scholarship that goes along with them. I mean, you can imagine people have been writing about this stuff for generations. And one of the kind of tricks of being able to do it is that, you know, you can jump in and just play with the ancient sources and kind of put them into a, a rough shape. But as a scholar, I think it's also really important to take account of what people have said around and about those sources. So the whole tradition, I mean, we're talking multiple languages here, the tradition in French, the tradition in German, the tradition in Italian of what we know has been said before. As As the scholar, I have to be up on all of that case law, as it were. So really, if I can find a good research library, Rome has a really good research library, then I can do all that work at one time. And that's kind of how I get stuff done. I know that Trump is a bit of a scholar <laughs> of uh, Rome, and he said a lot of that is fake news. Uh-huh. Yeah. I, I mean, you'll you'll find you'll find scholars who are equally adamant that the reports, let's say, if if something is only attested for Alaric's life in one source, you'll get report you'll get scholars who are just absolutely certain that it's fake, you know, just because it's said once. And I get that inclination. I mean, I am a skeptic. I am 
totally critical, hypercritical at times. Uh, but I also think when storytelling, when trying to make, you know, a big audience understand why something matters, it's, you can, you can do both things. You can say, treat this with suspicion. Yeah. You do that in the book. Yeah. You do that a lot. You go like, okay, this is what is said, but we don't know. Right. I think honesty is the best policy, right? I mean, I, I want to create trust with the person reading the reading the book. So I, I just want to be honest about about where things are coming from. The degree of difficulty for this project was absurd. I mean, there's a reason why the last book on Alric was a novel written in France in the 1930s. It was, you know, an amazing, <laughs> opportunity, was an amazing opportunity to just, you know, pretend Alric was you know, a fin de siècle barbarian uh, seeing shows in Athens and enjoying the good life. Um, I mean, it, it's almost been impossible to try to do something. So this is really a, a, a story of his time. And I, I just hope people get that. You know, I don't normally read um, nonfiction or fiction about Rome, uh, ancient Rome, but this was... Uh, very, very uh, eye-opening. And again, the parallels to now in terms of the xenophobia, calling others the other, characterizing that way, the, the, the extreme the loss of the middle at that time, very, very parallel in so many ways, you know, concerns me because we, we obviously... The United States has always, or has since World War II, in many ways, been the indispensable nation. And as recently as the Ebola crisis, we led in that. The CDC led in that, the response to that. Uh, we are, and part of this, I think, has to do with our president, you have seen a collapse, really, of our government in terms of being able to do stuff and wanting to do stuff. And you've also seen a, a guy who wants to divide us. It's it's obviously concerning to, to everybody. We used to be the indispensable nation. He has pulled back. This president has, has, seems to embrace dictators and thugs. Uh, he abandons you know, allies uh, who have died for us, the Kurds. Uh, we are losing our place in the world, and I'm very concerned right now. There's polling that has Biden ahead of Trump, but many a slip twixt cup and lip, and this guy is very good at dividing people, and this might be that kind of election. Societies are given these moments. Rome was given this moment to decide whether it wanted to change its ways after Alaric's attack. It chose not to change its ways, and then the Roman Empire fell apart. So I think the, the moments we see in history are not inevitable times of collapse. What we really can get out of them is what are the forces that are making people think we should just keep going with the way that we're going and kind of blithely oblivious to the, the consequences. I noticed you, I think the third chapter, you uh, started with a quote from Euripides, the playwright, right? He was Correct. a playwright. Yep, yep. And he says, it's slow speech that brings the greatest wisdom. 
And I've been criticized for speaking too slowly. I just want to say that Euripides uh, was right on the mark. I mean, I, I, I like that quote very much because I, my mind sometimes moves too fast. And I have to kind of constantly, my, my partner is the one actually always telling me, he's saying, just slow down, just be more thoughtful. And I think that's why I, I like writing because I have to go slow when I write. And so I just think that's, it, it was just, it captured the idea of um, what it meant to grow up, what it meant to mature. So that was why I put it there. Well, I thank you for this book. I thank you for uh, joining me. Any Any kind of perspective that I can... Uh, try to give by talking to uh, authors like you, scholars like you, just thinkers like you, uh, I think is helpful to my listeners. And I thank you for your work. This has been super. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember remix and reimagine for the kids in your life today join me dj and my trusty turntable baby scratch as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast once upon a beat wondry and tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet it's once upon a beat follow once upon a beat on the wondry app or wherever you get your podcast you can listen to once upon a beat early and ad free right now by joining wondry plus in the wondry app or wondry kids plus in apple Podcasts. once upon a beat the early 2000s was a wild time for reality tv There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? We recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.